everything we have going on in the world, both foreign and domestic, all of the challenges we face politically, culturally, societally. We, uh, it's good to know, it's good to be reminded that Jesus is King forevermore and that He is our hope. That we put our hope in Him. Our faith is sure and steadfast because He is sure and steadfast. God is a, our God never changes. He is the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. And so we have our hope in Jesus Christ. And so I hope you share that hope with me this morning. And uh, so go ahead and take your Bibles and open them up with me to Luke chapter 19 as we continue through the gospel of Luke. I know it seems like we are near the end. If you look just a few pages over, we, we only have four more chapters to go. But if you look at that in the context of the fact that it's been uh, in the process of over a year that we've gotten this far, we've still got a ways to go. And so uh, we're going to be looking, uh, though very um, intently over the next several weeks, at the geographical location of where Jesus has been traveling this whole time. So we're going to end this latter uh, part of these series of sermons in Jerusalem. And even without realizing it, uh, most of us haven't realized it anyway, but this whole process of going through the Gospel of Luke has really been a geographical journey. You've been able to trace Jesus as he's traveled through Galilee and as we've been on the road. And seven times uh, leading up till today, Jesus has said that, uh, or Luke has recorded that on his way to Jerusalem. So all of these teachings, all of the miracles, everything that has been transpiring has been on a journey. Jesus has always been on the road to Jerusalem. Because it's in Jerusalem that we see the culmination and the consummation of the gospel. What we're seeing is the, the New Testament prophecies and all that has been shared about the coming Messiah. All of that is going to come to a head in Jerusalem. And so this has been the journey that we have been on. Even those who were there on the journey with him. He has had crowds of people following him. His disciples have been following him on this journey to Jerusalem. And they are trying to piece together a puzzle. They're trying to understand what was going to happen when he got to Jerusalem. And in their minds, they believe that it would be in Jerusalem that Jesus would establish his kingdom on earth. That's what they are thinking. They believe that this was going to be the end of all world powers and that God would establish his reign on earth. One can only imagine that they were hoping that Jesus was going to walk into Jerusalem, kick open the city gates and make a spectacle out of the oppressive Roman regime. That's what they had hoped. That's what they were looking for. Destroying all the injustice and all the oppression by the wicked elite of their day. The crowd completely misunderstood Jesus. They misunderstood what he has been teaching them. They missed the point of what they saw just last week. Whenever Brother Matt presented to us, Jesus 
healing the blind man who we could say was the oppressed and then healing the rich man, the tax collector, who we could say was the oppressor. And in those two events, what Jesus was showing us is he loves both the oppressed and the oppressor. He loves both the poor and the rich, the blind and this tax collector. But they missed the point. They missed what the big picture was and what Jesus has been showing them. It's that he has a purpose and a reason for coming and he is putting together. His, folks, it's not a puzzle that we have to put together. It's a painting that's being unfolded to us and it's a beautiful portrait of grace. What Jesus shows us in all of this is that he operates in ways that we would have never imagined. Jesus surprises us by acting according to his will and not what we want his will to be. Not what we think it should be like. It reminds me of the story of the man who was walking in the field one day and he looked down on this little bitty vine and saw a giant watermelon. And he looks at this big giant oak tree and sees a little bitty acorn. And he says, God just doesn't know what he's doing. If it were me, I would have put the watermelon on the big tree and the acorn on the little vine. And about that time, an acorn fell and hit him in the head. God knows what he's doing. And he operates in ways that are not comprehensible. Some of you are going to think about that story. In about two minutes, you're going to start laughing over it because it made sense. That the people expected Jesus to turn the world upside down by ushering in this kingdom on earth and to inflict pain and judgment on the oppressors, to judge the wicked. That's what they're thinking. But what does Jesus do? He just stops and tells them a parable, gives them a story, a way to understand what he's up to. We get to look back and we can see this story unfold, but he's politely and lovingly, graciously explaining to them what he expects of those who claim to be followers of Christ. Notice verse 11, as they heard these things, he's been teaching, he's been going through, uh, after he saved Zacchaeus, he continued to share teachings. And as they listened, they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Why? Because he was near to Jerusalem. He's getting closer to his geographical goal. And because he was getting close to Jerusalem, they supposed that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. You can almost see the anticipation growing in the crowd the closer to Jerusalem that Jesus gets. They are probably talking amongst themselves, laughing, laughing and imagining what the new kingdom is going to be like when Jesus unveils this new way of living on earth. They get to the inner, the, 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 they get closer to the city gates. They think that once he enters, that it is going to appear, that this is going to be something immediate that's going to happen. Jesus, let me, let me, let me warn you, 
as you grow in your faith and knowledge of God, that Jesus is notorious for shattering your preconceived notions about himself. Let me say something. If you have grown up believing certain things about the teachings of Christ, maybe certain things about the teachings of the end times or the process of salvation or the responsibility of man, don't lock yourself in so tightly that you cannot be corrected if you were taught wrong. We need to be married to the teachings of Christ, not preconceived ideas. These were people who had a fundamental knowledge of God and what the kingdom was going to be like, things that they'd been taught their whole life. They imagined that everything they'd been taught was about to happen and Jesus is not going to operate according to their preconceived ideas. He's explaining to them. He's been teaching them, telling them, showing them. It's not what you think. If anything, the greater context of Luke is showing us that many people who have been taught things of God their whole life was wrong about what they were taught. And Jesus is correcting them. Even his disciples did not understand everything. And Christ is teaching them also. We're no different, which is why we need to study the Bible with an open mind and full of faith that if God wants me to know something of himself, he will graciously reveal that to us in his truth. Think of it like this. The disciples and the crowd think that Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem with guns a-blazing. Not really guns. But they will ultimately experience, or what they will ultimately experience is watching Jesus get arrested, beaten, and killed under the Roman regime on a Roman cross. Not what they were expecting. Not what they were looking forward to. And here's the challenge for us today to be more committed. We need to be more committed to the teachings of Christ regardless if they lead us away from how we want the teachings of Christ to be. Folks, we, we live in a world today where people won't they, they, we live in a world today where people believe in the God of their own making because they want God to be a certain way. That's what they turn the text. That's how they bend the text toward their own preconceived ideas of God are. What they want their God to be like, the God that they're going to worship. The problem is that's not the God of the Bible. We don't get to make God the God of our own liking or making. That's idolatry. We are to worship the God that is revealed to us. That is why we preach the way we preach, verse by verse through the Bible, understanding the context, what God said then, he still says, says today. And regardless of what's happening in the world, we don't fit our own ideas of who God is into the text. We let the text inform us about who God is and let the word of God change us. And so we see this challenge as we go into this parable. Because Jesus is preparing his disciples for what they are not expecting. They're expecting Jesus to judge the wicked and establish his kingdom. They're going to live as rulers side by side with Christ. And Jesus is going to put all of his enemies under his feet. And this is what Jesus teaches them. So follow along now as you're on this journey. We're with the disciples. And listen to how Jesus teaches this. Look at verse 12. He said, therefore, because they're near Jerusalem, because they think the kingdom is about to appear immediately, 
A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So we need to know that Jesus in this parable is teaching two things. Jesus is talking to those who are following him in faith, those who are disciples of him. And he's also talking to those who do not belong to him. He's talking to those who are, according to the text, enemies of God. So there's two different ways that this message is being applied because it's to two different groups of people. For those who follow Jesus, who are following him in faith, Jesus is teaching them that there is a time when there will be an account for what they did in their service to him while he is away. For those who oppose him, Jesus is teaching them that there is a day that regardless of whether they acknowledge him as king or not, they will be judged, found guilty, and punished. I presume that most here would identify as followers of Jesus Christ. I believe that most of you would say, yes, I'm, I'm one who has faith. I believe in Jesus. And so, with that presumption, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, and you're taking notes, write this down. I'm not saying that you have to take notes if you're a follower of Jesus. But if you are taking notes, write this down. If you are a follower of Christ, if you're claiming to follow Jesus, you must accept that you are obligated to follow Jesus. You must accept that you are obligated to follow Jesus. Jesus, obligate yourselves. You're obligated by the scripture. You're obligated by God himself. You are obligated. You see, followers, followers of Jesus are responsible for what Jesus has given to us and how we use what he has given to us in this intermediate time because he has gone away, but he's coming again. We are in that intermediate state. And we are responsible with what God has given to us. First, we are part of the business of Jesus Christ. You could say it this way. I am part of the family business. If you're a child of God, you're part of the family business. Look at what it says in verse 13. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minus and said to them, engage in business until I come, until I return. <clears throat> Here's what's happened, brothers and sisters. Jesus has called us, saved us, and then he has indentured us into the family business. It's not just a matter of I'm saved. It's a matter of I am saved and part of my family's business, my father's business. On one hand, we are sons and daughters. On another hand, we are servants. And you'll understand that, I think, as we go on a little further. Jesus has called us into this business and this business includes 
the work of his church, both in a worship setting. We have uh, been called to pray, to worship, to evangelize. That means sharing the gospel with other people, sharing the hope of the faith that we possess. We are to disciple. We are to, uh, we are to fellowship. And we, we, we preach on these things, right? We preach on prayer. We, we have Bible studies on prayer. We have Bible studies on, uh, we have conferences on how to study the Bible. We, uh, we have Bible studies. We're going through Genesis right now, one of our small groups. We have small groups where we talk about sermon discussion. We have worship services where we sing and preach. But here's the, the point. God has not just invited us to attend religious services. Not to just be attenders or to be consumers at these events. We are not to be hearers only, but to be doers of the word also, right? Do this with me. Amen. It's in the text. We're not to be hearers of the word only, but to be doers of the word also. We have been called to take what we have received from God and employ them into our daily lives. In other words, this worship service doesn't stop with amen, and this is the conclusion of this service. It goes on into our daily lives. We take what we learn, we meditate on these things, and we employ these teachings into our lives so that we go out and we live accordingly to what we have been taught. We are to continue on this week in prayer and expressing joy and hope to God through thanksgiving and in sharing with others the gospel and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We have an obligation as agents of God's grace, trusting that God has called us to share in expanding his kingdom through the gospel. We are obliged, we are obligated to this responsibility. God has not called us to be consumer Christians. He has called us to be investors. You know the difference between a consumer and an investor? A consumer consumes and an investor invests. Simple, right? We live in what's called a consumer cultural, uh, social and economic construct. Our economy thrives on consumerism. We buy things, we purchase, we indulge, we enjoy the benefit of it. And we love the comforts of living in a consumer society because it feeds to our greed. We get comfortable in these types of things. But if everybody was a consumer, we would eat ourselves to death. That's why we need investors. Those who invest and build and make and grow. Now this is what we see in this concept that we are not to be consumers. Rather, God has called us to be investors in his business. We need to see ourselves as indentured servants. Let me tell you that I grew up in an incredible family. I really did. Not a wealthy family. For the first 13 years of my life, we had, it was, I remember really hard and difficult times financially. But let me tell you where we were rich. I was provided very well for through acceptance, 
love and security. I was loved on as a kid. And I felt tremendous security. I loved being with my family because it was safe. And I was, and I felt appreciated and, and I was even honored by my family. Man, they just loved me to death. They were so affectionate and kind. I had a tremendous amount of freedom growing up between my dad and my granddad. We had several hundred acres of farmland, which meant all the hunting and fishing that a kid could do that likes to do those things. Again, not rich. We, most of our meals came off of what we grew in the garden and off of the animals that came off of our land. But we had everything we needed and more love and acceptance than most people that I knew. But with all of this goodness that I experienced growing up, I was required to do a lot. I was a son and a grandson, but I was also an indentured servant. My, my dad and my granddad worked me. I was the only boy. And they used me to work on their field in a good way. I spent my mornings. Many of you, if you've never been around a chicken farm, will not understand what I'm about to say. I spent my mornings picking up dead chickens. We had total combined houses, seven chicken houses. 300 feet long and four rows in each house. And I had to spend my time walking up each row looking for dead chickens. 30,000 chickens in one house. You're having to walk and weave through all of that. It stinks. You stink when you walk out. You can barely breathe because of the amount. Can you imagine the ammonia concentrated from 30,000 chickens in a small confined area? And that's what it was like on the morning times. And then after that, we had hay fields. My grandfather leased hay fields. He didn't think he had enough, so he had to lease more. We had the Tillman field, the bowling fields. And so I was on a tractor cutting hay, raking hay, baling hay, hauling hay, storing hay. And whenever I wasn't doing that, I was running fence for the cows. My dad owned a heating and air conditioning business, an electrical. That meant when it was 100 degrees in July, he put me in the attic to run duck work and wire. I was a son and I enjoyed the benefits of love, grace, acceptance, and security that my family offered, but I was also an indentured servant. I had responsibilities and work that was required of me as a son. And see, this is what, this is the point. God doesn't just provide for us the love of His grace, His mercy, the acceptance and security of what comes with being a child of God. He has also indentured us into His family's business. And He has said, engage in business until I return. Take care of my business. That's your responsibility. Jesus has left, but he's coming back. But notice that he has left his business to the care of his servants. 
We need to understand that when Jesus left, he did not leave us alone, did he? But he gave us his Holy Spirit and along with the Holy Spirit, a twofold promise. On one hand, Jesus established his kingdom on earth in the lives of his people. In other words, Christ is presently ruling in this age right now. He is ruling in our lives. He is ruling in the events and circumstances of the world in which we exist right now. His kingdom is ruling. He has established his kingdom. And this is important to know because he is ruling and reigning now. That gives us hope. He has given us every spiritual blessing now, meaning that we have the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We have love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. God has equipped his church with hospitality, generosity, service, teaching, wisdom, understanding, faith, and prayer. All of these things that we have right now. He has blessed us in this inaugurated kingdom. We don't sit around just waiting for hope. We live with hope. We're not just hoping for something to come. We have hope right now. We, have, we can have peace right now. We can have joy right now. Knowing that God is sovereign. But then there is the promise of his return. He is coming back to establish his kingdom. To consummate his kingdom in the future where he will judge the works of both the church and he, will and he will judge the sins of the wicked, those in the world who have rejected Christ. You know, with everything we have had going on in the world, we hear a lot these days. We hear this a lot. We're living in the last days. Folks, we've been living in the last days for the last 2,000 years. But we hear that. There have been books that have been published about the last days and prophecies being fulfilled. Looking at peace treaties, what's happening domestically and foreign, what's happening in the world, the landscape, climate control, the UN, world powers, one world currencies, all these things. And Lord help us, there's a new Left Behind movie coming out right on the hills of COVID-19. Hey folks, that's free marketing right there. It is. Like Winston Churchill once said, never let a good crisis go to waste. And folks, I'm telling you right now, there are so-called Christian profiteers who are capitalizing on the events of today, prostituting the gospel. Pay attention to the word. The Bible spends far more time teaching us how to live in the end times than how the end times will happen. Let me suggest something. By saying that, I think if we spent less time talking about how the last days are going to happen and more time on how to live in the last days in which we currently abide, we will be more serious about the gospel. Let's just agree with the Bible that Jesus is going to return, which is the focus of this parable. And when he does, folks, not only are we obligated to follow Jesus in this intermediate time, we will have to give an account of how we have been working in the family business. We will have to give an account of the works done while he has been away. Look at what it says in verse 15 through 19. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. 
The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. You have been faithful in very little. You shall have authority over 10 cities. The second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. There is going to be great reward for those who are faithful with the things that God has entrusted with us until Christ returns. All of the things I've shared with you, the, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to His church. These things God has entrusted with us. And God expects us to employ them. This is why Matthew 24, 46 says, Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. The servant whom when the Lord returns finds him being busy about employing the things that God has given to us. Employing our faith. Employing our prayers. Employing our time spent with God. Employing our fellowship. Employing all of these things. Employing the gospel. Using these things. Remember, we're not consumers, right? We're investors. We're to invest in our family. We're to invest in our church. We're to invest in our neighbors and in our community. We're to invest in the world. I told you earlier, folks, we should not take these things for granted. Whenever we tithe and we give, and as a church collectively, when we are faithful with those tithes and we are supporting the ministry, the things that God has told us to support, and when we see things like giving the amount of money that we're giving to missions, what it shows us is we actually believe that this is what God has called us to do. We actually believe that God has called us to be partners in the gospel. We actually believe in making this type of an investment. And let me say something. I know it's not easy to invest your money in things that you have to let it go and wonder where's it going. That's why we try to be as transparent as we can to say this is how we become stewards of these things that God has given to us, even in finances. We are investing in the kingdom of God. We need to be faithful. And not just investing our money, investing our lives, our time. Hey, you know what? You know what? You know what we need to be doing? If we don't go on the field, if we're not capable, not God, God's not called all of us to go on the field, but we have missionaries who would love to hear from you. And texting them, emailing them, FaceTiming them, calling them on the phone and just saying, hey, you don't know me. I'm a member of Calvary Baptist Church, but you're one of our missionaries. And I just want you to know I'm praying for you. And invest encouragement in others who are doing the mission work on the field. Notice what the faithful servants say. Both of them said this, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas. Lord, your mina has made, not mine. I didn't invest what was mine into your work. I invested what was yours into your work. These servants didn't pat themselves on the back. They didn't say, look at all I've done. Because they had, if it had not been for the grace of God, they would have had nothing to do. They could only invest what God had given to them. And in return, Jesus had said, you had been faithful. Now you will be a blessed ruler. In other words, God will share his authority with us. God has called us to be faithful and wise while he is away. But what about those who are not faithful and wise? 
They're servants, they're believers, but they've not been faithful with the things that God has given to them. What about those who do not invest their lives in the business? Well, he has something to say about that. Look at verse 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what is not, or what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. By the way, a misunderstanding of God is a bad thing. That's what you just read. A misunderstanding. But what Jesus does here, he says, uh, I'm going to condemn you with your own words. You wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And um, at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And so the master says to those who stood by, take the minor from him and give it to the one who has 10 minus. And they said, but Lord, he already has 10 minus. He said, I tell you that every one that has more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. We have to be very careful when we come to passages like this. This is a parable and it's illustrating a truth in which I'm going to read a further clarification of what he's saying here through the, uh, from what Paul said to the Colossians. But Jesus is illustrating a spiritual truth and what he is saying to the unfaithful servant is that he will suffer the loss of reward, not the loss of life. He's suffering the loss of reward. Again, there are two judgments the Bible talks about at the return of Christ. There's what's called the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ in which Christ will judge all believers according to what they did with what he gave to them. You're obligated to follow Christ. Remember that. You will have to give an account for following Christ. And so there is the judgment seat for believers. That's the reason there is a judgment seat for works because there will be those who will not be faithful with the things that God gave them. But then there is the other judgment, the great white throne judgment, and this is the judgment for unbelievers. This parable, Jesus is talking about believers at this point. He's going to get to the unbelievers. He's talking about this unfaithful servant, he or she, being unfaithful in their works. And here's what God is saying. 1 Corinthians 3 gives us a fuller picture. Let me read this for us. According to the grace given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. In other words, we're, everything we're a part of is Christ. We're building upon that foundation. We're building upon the gospel. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire. Imagine a giant blowtorch going over your works. Your works are either going to be gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble. What's gold going to do to that wood, hay, and stubble? It'll be taken away. And this is what he says here. He says, it'll be manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Paul is showing us that there will be a time of an accounting. You will have to let God see and expose all of your works. And it's going to be like taking a giant blowtorch. And if your works have, are, 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 have been faithful, it will be revealed as gold, silver, and precious stones. And let me tell you something. 
The reward is not that, that you get to keep those. The reward is that you're going to get to take those and lay them at the feet of Christ. But if you have wood, hay, and stubble, it'll be burned up. You will be empty-handed and have nothing to lay at His feet. Those who were selfish, foolishly ambitious, greedy. You see, there will be a day of accounting. If you are selfish, materialistic, and greedy, then your works will be taken away. All that you've accomplished here will be your reward. This will be it. And this will be over and done with. Your reward is now, but you'll be ashamed of the wasted time that you had. In this parable... There are faithful servants. There are unfaithful servants. But then there's the third category. Those that oppose Jesus. These are those that do not want Christ to rule over them. They made it very clear. They are the citizens of his kingdom. They are the ones who live in the world right now. I've told you, God's kingdom is here right now. There are people who live in this world right now rejecting Christ. Hate him. Do not want him. It doesn't matter how much of a package you wrap around Jesus and put a little pretty bow on it. They're not going to want him. They're against him. And they've made it very clear. They do not want him. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. America's not ignorant of Jesus. They just hate him. They don't want anybody to rule in their lives. They don't want to be an indentured servant. They want this world to be their playground. And for them to do whatever they want because they are wicked. They oppose Christ. Look at what it says, verse 14. But his citizens hated him. Strong word. They hated him. And sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Who do you think that person is they're talking about? It is Christ. You see, this world belongs to Jesus, but the citizens of this world do not want him to rule over them. They do not want Christ as their Lord. These are the ones that Christ calls his enemies, not his friends, not his family. And here's what you need to understand. And if you're here and you are an enemy of Christ this morning, you need to get this. Regardless of whether or not you accept Christ as your king, you will still be obliged to stand before him in the final day at the judgment of Christ. The Bible says that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. That's not every tongue confessing that he's Savior. They will just have to acknowledge that he is the supreme authority and ruler. So reject him now all you want. One day you will bow and you will be bowed before him as judge and you will be found guilty. This is what he says in verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. I, you know, I, I believe it's a hard thing. I really do. I believe it's a hard thing for people to hear about Jesus being gracious and kind and merciful and loving. And yet at the same time being a God of judgment, a God who will send people to hell. A God who created hell. It's hard to reconcile that, I think, for some people. But let me tell you why it's difficult. Because you don't understand what God thinks about sin. 
You see, the reason that we as Christians even understand the love of God is because of the cross of Calvary, because of what Christ is on his way to Jerusalem to accomplish. We understand the love through what John 3.16 tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Right? We understand that love through his sacrifice because of Romans 5, 8, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we understand when we see the cross, we look at it through the lens of love and grace and mercy. But it's the very cross itself that demonstrates to us the severity of how God hates sin and the judgment of sin that was taking place on the cross. For Jesus Christ is the one who received the outpouring of God's wrath upon himself in our place. And so Jesus received our judgment so while we sit here and bask in the love and grace and enjoy the benefits of being children of God through his love and acceptance and guiltlessness, we have to understand that Jesus bore our sins and in doing so bore the very wrath of God upon himself and suffered pain and anguish. Suffering like you had never could imagine. So when we understand that Christ is both loving and gracious and mercy on the same coin, we also see that he is also a God of judgment who detests and hates sin. Therefore, those who are found guilty will not be seen as those who have had the blood of Jesus Christ covering them, washing away their guilt, but they will be seen in their sins and no sin will ever be able to stand before the presence of God because he is a just and holy God. That's why his judgment is so severe. That's why he is a severe king. That's why. Because of his holiness, his righteousness, and his just. God hates sin. And those who do not belong to God, those who are the enemies of God, those whose name are not found in the writ, written in the book of life, will suffer the judgment of God. Eternal damnation apart from God in hell. I want to read one last scripture and we're going to close. This is out of Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it for his presence, from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. There was nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, no alibi. And I saw the dead, great and small, the rich and the poor, the powerful and the weak, the dictators and their servants, their subjects, the presidents, the kings, the great and the small. Folks, let me tell you something. It doesn't matter what position you hold on earth. Nothing apart from the blood of Christ can save you. Nothing. Because before this great white throne, no place was found. There is no justification. The dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead. All those who have gone before, there will be this resurrection and they were, they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into 
the lake of fire. Jesus gives us this parable. They think that he's about to establish his kingdom and he's trying to explain to them, no, I'm about to leave. I'm about to go away. I'm going to come again, but I've called you to be part of my business. There's going to be a day of accounting where I'm going to judge you as my servants. You will be judged on the basis of your works of faith. But then there are going to be those who hated me. Those who were not mine, they didn't belong to me. They were my enemies. Their names are not written in the book of life. And they will all, those of past and, and the present, those, they will, there will be a, a time when they will all appear before the great white throne judgment of Christ. And there he will disclose to them that their names are not written in the book of life. And listen to what he's going to say. Matthew 7 actually gives us a little fuller detail. I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you iniquity, workers of iniquity, into everlasting fire. Consistent with Scripture. The question I believe that is on most people's minds whenever we deal with a text like this, and it's a good question, which judgment will I face? Will I stand in the judgment of believers? Or will I stand in the judgment of unbelievers? And if I am in the judgment of believers, out of which two categories... And believers, will I be faithful? Will I, have be, will I be found being faithful with the things that God has given to me? You will give an account. But then there are those who are not. And if you identify in this area, but you have a desire in your heart to know Christ, you want to believe in God, and you have an understanding and a love for what Christ has done for you, you believe that He has died on the cross for your sins. Confess your sins and trust by faith in God's grace to save you. You see, the difference between these two has everything to do with relationship and nothing at all to do with religion. It's a matter of whether or not you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Do you belong to Him? Only you know. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word and God convict us from this word. Lord, for those of us who are followers of Christ, I pray that we would be faithful to follow you, to obligate ourselves to be part of the family business, to not just come and be consumers at church, but to be investors in the kingdom, to encourage one another, to fellowship with one another, or to give of our, ourselves to the gospel, to share with others the hope that's within us, to pray, to seek your face, to seek to walk with you. Help us to express the fruit of the Spirit in regardless of the circumstances, that we would show love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Lord, that we would be relying upon your Holy Spirit because these are your works. This is what you do through us. Lord, we're only giving it back to you. So Lord, help us to be faithful and then exercising the gifts of the Spirit. Lord, the, the teaching, the serving, the encouraging. Lord, the praying, the faith. Help us to live these things out every single day of our lives. And Lord, forgive us where we fail. 
You know our frame that we are dust. You know the struggles that we face. You know the discouragement we go through. You know the challenges we face in our own personal lives. So Lord, help us to depend upon you in our moments of weakness. And help us to depend upon you in our times of strength. In all things, help us to depend on you. And Lord, if there are those who are here today who do not know Christ, I pray that they would recognize their need to trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, acknowledging that what you did on the cross was for them and that they would confess their sins, repent of their sins, and trusting you for what you have done and what you have accomplished for them. And I pray these things that you would get glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.